0: It's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes
1: released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
0: Brexit means Brexit. My
1: administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
2: Hello and welcome. What an incredibly busy week this has been for news. This is Mid-Atlantic I'm Royful Brown. I'm back in Oakland in California. The sun is shining, and today we're going to delve into the landmark antitrust trial between the US Department of Justice and the tech giant Google with Adam uh, he who's a tech expert and the founder and CEO of the Chamber of Progress.
3: Welcome back to Squawk Box. The Justice Department beginning its antitrust trial against Google. It's being billed as the biggest antitrust trial in 20 years. I'm going to get straight over to Eamon Javers, who joins us now with more on what may be one of the biggest cases in quite some time. Hey, Andrew,
1: this is going to be the tech trial of the century, at least so far. We haven't seen a heavyweight antitrust battle like this since the U.S. Department of Justice took on Microsoft in a titanic struggle between government and industry in the 1990s. The trial is going to be months long, and it's full of highly technical testimony, but at its core are going to be a set of simple but competing arguments here. The U.S. Department of Justice will argue that Google Built its 90% search market share by violating the law, spending billions of dollars a year to become the default search engine on many devices and squashing its competition. Now, lawyers for Google, on the other hand, are going to argue that the company built its dominance simply by making a better product. The two sides here are bringing enormous assets to bear, Andrew, with the DOJ authorizing additional resources for its team, and Google hiring three outside law firms to prepare for the case. Now we do expect Google CEO Sundar Pichai to testify. At some point along the way, witness lists have not been released yet, so we can't confirm that for sure yet.
2: As the week of testimony wraps up, has Google achieved its position through genuine market success or has it leveraged its immense size and power to create an unfair advantage? This trial is somewhat reminiscent of the U.S. versus Microsoft case in the late 90s and is being closely observed for its potential implications on future antitrust cases and the broader tech industry. Adam, did I do a decent kind of intro into this topic? You did. And although I would
3: say we're now, I
2: think, four weeks into the trial. Wind us all the way back. What are the implications of the DOJ going up against Google, not only
3: for Google, but specifically for big tech? Sure. Let me first explain what this case is about. This is a case that was started in the waning days of the Trump administration. It was continued on by the Biden Department of Justice. It's really about Google's search deals, search default deals with Apple, with Mozilla, with Android manufacturers. Here's the compar- Here's the analogy that I like to use. When you walk into a supermarket and you go down the, say, the uh, the cookie aisle, you might see there's a lot of Oreos in the cookie aisle, maybe perhaps even a premium eye level placement on the shelf. That's not an accident. That's because the grocery store, in this case, say Safeway or Giant has has done provided what they call slotting fees and a growth uh, a a product like oreos is paying safeway or giant for that eye level premium position that doesn't mean that you can't also buy hydrox or other types of cookies but it does it's a sort of a form Nobody of marketing them. whether or not people want them you can get them right they're also available in the store And so there's a similar dynamic around search deals. So Apple, so Google has deals where they pay Apple and Mozilla and companies like Samsung create Android devices to be the default search provider on those devices. Other search engines like Bing and DuckDuckGo also pay Apple and Google to be secondary option. But the heart of the case is whether these deals are improper, whether they themselves are making Google unbeatable in search. And that's really the, the heart of the question. How useful is that analogy?
2: It illustrates the the problem to a certain degree. But we have fundamentally, not only is Google, by default, the search engine, but by default controls a massive percentage of, of the internet, isn't it? And then that really means that the analogy of the supermarket or the grocery store and the oreos isn't quite correct because if you you've chosen to walk into that grocery store but you've had numerous others you could have gone into
3: almost by default that isn't the case with search on the internet the the case is going to hinge essentially on a couple key questions so one is Though Google is paid to be the default, how easy is it for a consumer to switch to another search engine? That's what's mm-hmm. known as switching costs. And that's a part of antitrust analysis. One of the reasons why Microsoft was originally found guilty in the late 90s in its antitrust trials, because the cost of switching to, say, from Internet Explorer to Netscape was quite high because at then everybody had dial up Internet and it took forever to download a competing um, Internet browser now the, the process for part of Google's argument is that changing your default in Safari or Mo, Mozilla Firefox or in Android to another search engine is easy. So that's part of it is the switching cost analysis. It's really like, how difficult is it? But the other difficult question is, why does Google have this, the share of search queries that it does, right? There's some, it's arguing in court that it competes against a broader array of competitors, but the Justice Department's argument is that Google has, you know, 90% plus of general search uh, engine queries. And at the heart of this is the DOJ is arguing that Google achieved and maintains that position through these default deals. And Google's argument is that it achieved and maintains this position by being the best, by being the highest quality search engine, by having the best results. And that's also why, Apple and Mozilla choose it to, as the default search. So there's a couple of parts of this, but one is how easy is it to switch and, to, and is it possible? And two is this question of why do people choose it? And, you know, I think the idea that they choose it because they're forced to is disproven by a, it is disproven by a number of counter examples. So for example, um, in the trial, it's come out that Mozilla Firefox at one point switched the default from Google to Yahoo. They did a deal with Yahoo and Yahoo was paying them, willing to pay them quite a bit what they fa- saw happen was that searchers changed their default from Yahoo to Google because they thought it was a higher quality. And so I think that consumer behavior is really important here as well. There's no question
2: that back in the early 2000s, when you had a multiplicity of search engines, lycos AltaVista, Vista, etc that when Google came along, it was just better. That's the reason why it achieved that that market dominance. But can you just wind us back to the reason why the DOJ chose the end of the Trump ad, uh, administration to actually launch this case? What specifically had happened for them to say, this is the time when we need to look at the monopolistic practices of Google and its search engine?
3: Well, it was politics? You, you have to remember that at the time, President Trump was warring with the attorney general, Bill Barr, the head of the Justice Department, over whether or not the election was Stolen or going to be stolen, and also how they've ha- how they'd handled things like Russia and Ukraine previous investigations. So they were at odds, and I think pretty clearly, Bill Barr wanted to bring a case against Google, any case against Google, to show that he was being tough on the big tech companies who Trump thought were censoring conservatives. What and I think this is well established by a lot of the reporting at the time. They seemed to cast about. They started with their target. We got to bring a case against Google, and then they rejected other potential cases against Google. This was a case that is, it, it would largely benefit Bing. If it, if the DOJ succeeded, they'd be the, probably the biggest beneficiary. The biggest loser probably wouldn't be Google, but would probably be Mozilla. But I'm happy to get into why. But I, I don't think it was, I don't think it started because they had done this really holistic look about at the search engine space. I think that started because Bill Barr wanted to show Trump that he was sticking it to Google.
2: And, and do you think that this is fundamentally just maybe the start of many other actions by the US government against big tech? We've seen in Europe that the European Union can be quite robust against, against big tech. There have been fines for, for Meta and Meta haven't even launched threads in Europe be, because of the, the power of the, of the European Union. Is this the start of many other instances, whereas the US government is going to basically at least be wagging a large finger at, at big tech.
3: It's not even a start. <laughs> it's not even the first. I think it just happens to be the current prominent example and an interesting example because it's one of the few that's onto a fulsome trial. But the FTC has an ongoing lawsuit against Meta for you know, trying to unwind its acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram, which were 10, 11 years ago. It brought a case against Meta for a virtual reality acquisition. The FTC lost that case. It brought a case against Microsoft for acquiring Activision. It also lost that case. There's a big case. There are This Google case by the DOJ is actually one of two DOJ cases against Google. And, and Apple is the subject of kind of a long running antitrust suit from a company called Epic Games, which the Department of Justice has taken an interest in as well. I am happy to talk about Amazon. Amazon's the other big one that's been Mm. in the news recently because of a new FTC case. But no, I just think, look, and a part of this is these are big companies. They should, they should attract a lot of scrutiny. They have a big impact. They should be scrutinized. I don't think a lot of these cases are very strong cases, but I think it's to be expected that big companies like the big tech companies will face cases like this. Alina Khan's FTC has a reputation for taking on large tech
2: companies. And as you said, I said, is this the start? No, there, there have been a few cases. But what does the FTC keep losing? Is this fundamentally just the power of big tech and lobbies? Or have these cases always been as weak as you think this one actually is?
3: I think that they haven't chosen cases very well. I, and by the way, I think part of it is, if you look at federal trade commissions generally, most of where they typically get their wins, their points on the board, are from settlements, not from lawsuits. And so a lot of times, for example, in a merger case or even in a conduct case, they'll look at a company and they'll say, okay, we, we've identified these problems. Let's strike a deal where you knock off those That behavior. And they've, in the past, historically tried the settlement route first. And in many cases, that works. The cases companies are generally have been willing to settle with the FTC on sort of behavioral antitrust matters. Her view and the view of kind of the school of thought that she associates with neo-Brandeisian view is that settlements give companies and defendants too much, too much power, and that they essentially, it concedes too much and furthermore, she has been interested for a long time in expanding the applicability of antitrust laws. She wants to stretch antitrust law in new ways in novel theories. That's a express goal of hers. And I think her view is that you can't do that unless you bring cases, even if they're cases on the edge of existing law and then you win those cases. Problem is when they've done that, they have, they, they've lost the cases. And so I think that it, it it's, it's, leading to a dynamic where the FTC is a bit of a paper tiger. No one really fears them anymore because they say, we'll take our chances in court. And based on the FTC's record, we, the company, have a better than even shot in winning. And I think, again, the same is true of this most recent Amazon case by the FTC. Lead us into the Amazon case. What are the fundamentals that the listeners need to know? Sure. There's really two parts of it. One has to do with Amazon Prime. And that is that Today, when you go into Amazon and you see a product marked as Amazon Prime, that might be directly sold by Amazon, but more likely than not, it's sold by a a third party seller. And Amazon has rules in place that say that if you want your product, if you as a seller want your product to be labeled as Prime, then you have to use Amazon's own fulfillment services for warehousing the product and shipping the product. That costs a fee, a small fee to sellers. But for the consumer, it helps ensure that the product gets there in time. That's the whole value proposition of Prime. That you know, it used to be two day. Now in many cases, is one day delivery. Some sellers don't like the fees that they have to pay, and they want to be they want their products to be Prime labeled, but not have to use Amazon's fulfillment services. And so that's what the FTC is aiming at. Interestingly. Amazon has had a pro, has a has had a program for several years now that allows sellers to use to, do, to ship products themselves and still be eligible for their products, be eligible for Prime. But the big problem they found is that when sellers were responsible for their own shipping, only about 16 percent of the products got to consumers in time. So they have very strong reasons for these rules in place. And I think that all, that's going to be a kind of a central question. That's the first. The second really has to do with Amazon's policies for what's called winning the buy box. If you go onto Amazon and you search for, say, gardening gloves, you know, that there are actually multiple merchants, multiple sellers who are trying to be the seller of that particular garden, gardening glove. And Amazon, so Amazon has to choose one of them to be the seller who gets the sale when you click add to my card or one click sale. And so a whole number of factors go into which merchant wins the buy box. One of Amazon's rules is you as a merchant, if you're selling that product for less expensively on some other website, Walmart, eBay, et cetera, then you're probably not going to be the buy box selected merchant anymore. That's because Amazon wants to be able to tell its customers that when you come to Amazon, you're going to get the best price online. And so there 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 are some sellers who who believe and who feel that amazon's policy causes them to to raise their prices off of amazon and that's the, sort of the heart
0: of the ftc's complaint tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad-free listening is available on amazon music where all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the amazon music app for free Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: Isn't really what's at the heart of these both uh, of these two cases is the size of these companies. And if not the actual, the potential anti competitive practices that they are. I'm going to say wittingly, but let's say because of their size, because of their dominance within this specific market, they are unwittingly exerting over whether it's users, customers, and or companies who
3: they do business with. Certainly in every antitrust case that's brought, the company's size is a necessary precondition, right? So in any antitrust case the government has to first establish that the company in question has what's called market power. Sometimes you just have to say it's a monopoly. And then and part of that is that you have to define a market in which the company has market power. And that's a precondition. Actually, for both the Amazon FTC case and the current DOJ case against Google, the first step the government has to prove is whether the company has a, has market power. That's not really the heart of either case. The heart of either case is then their behavior that the government feels is illegally maintaining a monopoly position. But the first step is establishing market power. Whenever this happens in any antitrust case, the government always defines the market as narrowly as possible. So for example, when I think of Amazon, I think of Amazon as competing against not just Walmart and Target online, but Home Depot and eBay and my local brick and mortar merchant or specialized merchants online. Right? They only have about 38% of all online um, retail and only about three and a half, four 4% of all retail generally. But what the FTC said is, no, that's actually not the market. They said the market is online superstores and in the online superstore market, which presumably only includes Amazon and Target and Walmart, uh, Amazon has 60% share. So they define these markets very narrowly in order to establish that the company has market power. And the first question a judge has to sort through, is this market definition fair? Is it accurate? Does it accurately reflect the state of competition? So again, in the current Google case, the government is saying Google only competes with Bing and DuckDuckGo and other general search engines. Google's argument is actually we compete against different types of services for different types of queries. So if you're searching for a product you might go to Amazon instead of Google. Or if you're searching for a hotel, you might go to Expedia instead of Google. And all of that, all of this is part of the debate at the trial that the judges have to sort out.
2: I'm looking at Amazon's growth and and influence. And for me, that does ring some kind of analogy back to the Microsoft and Netscape bundling case where 20 plus years ago, Microsoft were accused of, uncompetitive practices by giving people Windows Explorer, CD-ROMs, etc. to get around Netscape. And fundamentally, what they were doing was using Windows as a way of then launching this new product, which was competitive with Netscape. Can't we look at Amazon's growth and influence and the way that it dominates the US online shopping market with its massive percentage share and then and the way that is now going into other sectors like healthcare, home security, filmmaking, et cetera, in exactly the same way. Why are these two cases f- fundamentally different? I, I don't understand. But then again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a tech
3: expert. Again, it all goes back to the facts of the market at the time. And during the Microsoft trial in the late 90s, people forget this now, but when Mac was really not a non-factor. Windows had a massive share of the desktop and laptop operating system market. So that was number one. Number one is that there was a high share. Number two, and there was difficult to switch from, say, a Windows computer to a Mac computer. But the second issue is that the court ruled that Windows, that Microsoft had a monopoly with Windows, and that it used that monopoly power on Windows to extend into the browser space by saying, okay, Dell and IBM, if you want Windows... You have to pre-install our web browser, Internet Explorer, and you cannot install Netscape Navigator, the the browser, the leading browser competitor at the time. It was written into contracts that they couldn't do that. That is a very different thing than I think either the current Google case where there is no such, there is so no, no such, you know, requirement written into contract. Nor is it the case with, I think, consumers use of Amazon where there really isn't that same lock-in. If you don't like the price of something on Amazon, you're going to go comparison shop for it online. And so it all starts with this question of, is there market power and is there lock-in? And, and what are the switching costs? That's where all these antitrust analyses start. And this the situation is going to be different based on the market.
2: We are in a very busy news week. Can we just quickly just switch to me having your take on Elon Musk and the EU? in terms of the
3: current fight today on content? Yes, something? about
2: oh, yeah. EU warning X yeah. or Twitter that it needs to take down alleged disinformation and yeah. if it doesn't in a timely manner, that it will result in 6% of its revenues
3: being taken. Sure. The EU recently implemented a law called the Digital Services Act. One of the things that's interesting about the Digital Services Act is that it, it's primarily a process law. So it doesn't say, it doesn't specify what types of speech have to be taken down by online platforms. But it says that companies have to have a process in place for acting on those complaints in accordance with their own policies. And so the French European commissioner, Thierry Britton, who's responsible for enforcing it, regularly pops up to, to talk to companies about, are they complying with the DSA's procedural process requirements? And I think that's what you're hap- what's happening now. Yeah, again, it's the, they're limited. They can't regulate this content of speech. So they're, they get around it by these sort of procedural requirements. Gotcha.
2: Somebody needs to complain that uh, a bit of misinformation is on
3: the platform and then the platform ne- needs to remove it in a timely manner. That's right. And that's a real problem for Elon Musk and X because he fired all these people who would normally do that, right? (laughs) They don't have content moderation really anymore. And he sees that as a feature, not a bug. He doesn't want there to be content moderation. And so that's going to lead to, in my view, a perpetual conflict between him and the Europeans on this question of content moderation.
2: Just whilst we are talking about Europe, specifically, could you just run us over the reason why Threads hasn't launched in in Europe. What specifically were Meta worried about,
3: concerned about, or in breach of the reason why the app didn't launch there? I can't speak for them because I don't know what went into their analysis, but there's a, a separate new European law that's gone to effect called the Digital Markets Act that essentially prohibits mostly U.S. platforms From what they call self preferencing, preference using your products to preference one service over another. And I suspect that Meta, at an abundance of caution, is has been trying to analyze exactly how they launch this service in a way that it can comply with the Digital Markets Act. By the way, the fact that they're having to do that, I think shows two things. One, it shows the silliness of the Digital Markets Act, because to the extent that Europe wants to increase competition for X and for Twitter, it should make it as easy as possible for Meta to launch a an X competitor, especially since they don't like X's approach to content moderation and Meta is quite good at content moderation. So this is where you start to see, okay, Europe, you care a lot about (laughs) platform integrity and Meta has actually shown quite a bit. And so yet that's conflicting with this rule you have about self-preferencing. But I think the other thing this points to for me is that I just think Europe, Europe has just gone on a kind of a, just a very wrong headed track over the last couple of years of digital regulation that's going to increasingly make Europe a, it's going to leave Europe behind in terms of digital innovation, new services. Companies increasingly are going to say, why bother? It's just a thicket of regulation and they're going to launch their products in more welcoming regimes. And I just... I think it's a huge mistake on the part of Europe's part to how they approach technology regulation.
2: You know, I think I have my first real point of disagreement with you here, Adam. Um, yes, Europe isn't Silicon Valley. Europe has produced Spotify, Skype. Those are the two obvious kind of world-beating online brands off the top of my head. and I'm sure there are a few others, but those are the two kind of obvious ones. Do you think that maybe part of this is the fact that these are American large tech companies? So part of this is a case of the the European Union reflexively being skeptical
3: about these tech companies because they're non-European. Oh, absolutely. I think it's protectionism. It's not they created this Digital Markets Act. And five out of the six companies that it targets and it covers are U.S. companies. The only the sixth is ByteDance. And look, I, I, it's blatantly protectionist and blatantly anti-American. In my opinion, it'd be like if we passed a law called, called the the Handbag Protection Act and it targeted the Hermes and all these European luxury brands and it didn't target Kate Spade, right, they would call foul on that. And they should call foul on that, by the way. That's exactly what's going on here. But you said that these tech
2: companies, if Europe isn't careful, can just go off to other other, other polities, other domains. But, but that's not the case, is it? Because Europe is such a big uh, market. It's well, a big market, but I
3: do think, I think they're going to get left behind. I just think, you're right, there's the size of the market, and so will threads eventually find a way? Sure. Right now, Europeans are missing out. And I just think that that's what their regulatory environment has wrought. And is it the end of the world if they're six months behind in getting Threads? No, it's not the end of the world. But I just think that this is going to get worse, not better, unless Europe takes a different approach. You know what? I signed up for Threads when it first launched. There's not much on there. <laughs> I, just,
2: I don't think you're. No, it. Yeah,
3: it's still like right. It's it's still pretty early, and I don't use it that much either. I, I want it to be better, so I don't have to keep using X anymore. But everybody's still on X too. So. That is true. And, and you know what? And if we are on X be, be, because
2: there is no real viable alternative, what we should do? Just call it Twitter, and that. Oh uh, yeah, I, still, I think everybody it. does that stuff. Exactly. So, so we're still on Twitter. Starting to wind this down. We are more than halfway through the case,
3: and you believe that the uh, FTC is going to get another bloody nose. Again, two separate cases. The DOJ, We're more than halfway through the DOJ Google case. That case will likely have a ruling come out in the spring. Regardless of who wins or loses, it will certainly be appealed, and that will be, be, go to an appeals court and that will be a longer process. It's important to say that it's been three years since that Google case was filed. And so the new FTC case against Amazon probably won't see the inside of a courtroom for two to three years also. And so these things have a long timeline because there's a sort of legal process. You have a motion to dismiss, and that's considered for a period of time. And if those things fail, you enter a period of discovery and depositions and testimony, which can be two years. And so I think that, uh, yeah, so these cases typically have a long, long, to take a long time to pan out. Adam
2: Kovacic, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. You, sir, have actually been, I'm trying to think. Who have we actually had on as an interviewee who's made more than one appearance? And I can't think off the top of my head. And considering we've been doing this in nine years, yeah. right, that, 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 that's quite a thing. Adam, can you be our kind of like tech expert? go? Sure. Can you I'm be sure. that? Go-to? this is great. Absolutely, I
3: love it. Fantastic. Tell us
2: a little bit more about the Chamber
3: of Progress. Sure. We are a center-left tech industry association. We're our business group. We promote industry i i got into this because and i i found this two years ago because my background is in democratic politics but i spent a dozen years at google i worked in the tech industry and and it was troubling me to see and some not very many but some prominent democrats take a kind of a negative turn against the tech industry several years ago and i didn't feel that that was in line with how most democratic voters feel about tech most democratic voters are Optimistic, positive value you feel that tech services are play a valuable role in their life. And I wanted to do something about it. So a lot of our work is about closing that gap.
2: There you go. You heard it here first. We have nothing to worry about, big tech. We're optimistic about it. Don't forget, folks, I always say this at the end of every episode left to center politics is right thinking politics. But we try and meet our right-leaning brothers and sisters in the common space, in the commonwealth of ideas. And we try and win them over with the strength of our argument. You can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com, R O I F I E L D at gmail.com. And you can tell me that maybe I should have been a little bit harder on Adam and, and thrown him much tougher questions than, than I did. I must admit, I'm still truly trying to understand some of the implications of these two cases, the DOJ and the FTC. And you'll have noticed that once or twice, in in the recording of this show i got the two mixed up but anyway adam thank you for coming on to the show where we are please write us a five-star review it's the best and the easiest way that we can get new users listening to the show tell your brother tell your mother tell your sister tell your aunt that mid-atlantic is a place we can go to to hear analysis with people who really know their stuff whether it's on tech or whether it is as we've uh, covered this week The uh, Hamas and Israeli war, where we've had Israeli journalists and Palestinian journalists talking about the perception of what is going to happen within that region of the world this week and going on from here. This has been me, Royfield Brown. Take care. Look after yourselves.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?